Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part four of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. In this episode, I'll be discussing the crisis of abundance and also heart disease. So starting with the crisis of abundance. As far back as the 1960s, before obesity had really become a widespread problem, there was a Stanford endocrinologist who I've mentioned before, Gerald Reven, who had observed that excess weight gain often traveled in company with certain other markers of poor metabolic health. He and his colleagues noticed that heart attack patients often had high fasting glucose levels. They also had high triglycerides, high blood pressure, and also abdominal obesity. In the 1980s, Gerald Reven labeled this collection of related disorders as Syndrome X, which we now call metabolic syndrome, and it was later determined that the X factor was insulin resistance. So if you have three out of the five criteria, you meet criteria for metabolic syndrome. So if your blood pressure is greater than 130 over 85, if your triglyceride level is greater than 150, if your HDL is less than 40 if you're a man, or less than 50 if you're a woman, if your waist circumference is greater than 40 inches in a man or 35 in a female, or if you have elevated fasting glucose, which is greater than 110, you meet the criteria for metabolic syndrome, along with as many as 120 million other Americans, according to an article in 2020 out of JAMA. About 90% of the U.S. population ticks at least one of these boxes. But notice that obesity is merely one of these criteria. It is not required for metabolic syndrome to be diagnosed. Clearly, the problem runs deeper than simply unwanted weight gain. He has this figure in the book, which was, again, out of the JAMA article, which shows quite dramatically how obesity and metabolic syndrome are not the same thing. So some 42% of the U.S. population is obese, meaning their BMI is greater than 30. Out of a conservative estimated 100 million Americans who meet the criteria for metabolic syndrome, almost exactly one-third are not obese. Many of these folks are overweight, meaning their BMI is between 25 and 29.9, but nearly 10 million Americans are normal weight, which is, again, BMI 19 to 24.9. But these 10 million Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Now, again, quickly describing metabolism. So metabolism, really briefly, is a process by which we take in nutrients and break them down for our body to use. Let's say you eat a donut. A donut really has two fates when you consume it. It's either going to be stored as glucose in the form of glycogen, or it's going to be stored as fat. So there's two real destinations here. But the twist here is that fat, like the subcutaneous fat, which is the layer just underneath our skin, is actually the safest place to store excess energy. And subcutaneous fat actually plays an important role in maintaining metabolic health. You can think of subcutaneous fat as a metabolic buffer zone. But if you can continue to consume energy, as in calories, these subcutaneous fat cells will slowly fill up, particularly if little of that stored energy is being, being utilized in forms of exercise or your resting metabolic rate. And that energy still has to go somewhere. And... As more calories flood into your subcutaneous fat tissue, it eventually reaches capacity and the surplus begins to spill over into other areas of your body, including like into your blood as excess triglycerides, into your liver, which contributes to NAFLD. It can go into your muscle cells and contribute to insulin resistance and even around your heart and your pancreas. Fat also begins to infiltrate your abdomen 
accumulating in between your organs, and we call this visceral fat. And we know why visceral fat is so unhealthy for us because it can, can secrete those inflammatory cytokines like TNF and IL-6. And this may be why visceral fat is often linked to increased risk of both cancer and also cardiovascular disease. So he has this beautiful graph here how excess fat increases cardio, cardiometabolic metabolic risk. So more energy intake, less energy expenditure, we have a positive energy balance. We get saturation of expansion capacity of our adipose tissue and, or an inability of our subcutaneous adipose tissue to expand. We get lipid overflow into our various organs like, again, our liver, our myocardium, our muscle, our kidney, and even our pancreas. This all leads to insulin resistance and inflammation, increases our risk of cardiometabolic risk, and also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. One of the first places where this overflow goes is, again, your muscle. Now, this is where insulin resist resistance likely begins. Insulin resistance likely begins in the muscle. Gerald Schulman concluded that, he, he really concluded this after many decades of work. And as fat begins to accumulate, it begins to disrupt the complex network of insulin-dependent transport mechanisms that normally bring glucose in to fuel the muscle cell. When these mechanisms lose their function, the cell becomes deaf to insulin's signals. Eventually, this insulin resistance will progress to other tissues as well, like the liver, but Schulman believes that it really originates in the muscle. So again, when you get fat infiltration in the muscle, you get less insulin signaling on the muscle, less glucose uptake, that glucose ends up staying more around in, in the blood and, and causing problems. And again, the question is, why is this epidemic happening now? The simplest explanation is likely that our metabolism, as it has evolved over millennia, is not really equipped to cope with our ultra-modern diet, which has appeared only within the last century or so. Evolution is no longer our friend because our environment has changed much, much faster than our genome ever could. Evolution wants us to get fat when nutrients are abundant. The more energy we could store in our ancestral past, the greater our chances of survival and successful reproduction. One abundant source of calories in our present diet, like fructose, also turns out to be a very powerful driver of metabolic dysfunction, if again consumed in excess. Now the key factor here is that fructose is metabolized in a manner different from other sugars. When we metabolize fructose along with other types of food, it produces large amounts of uric acid. And anytime we talk about uric acid, we always have to mention the nephrologist out of the University of Colorado, Rick Johnson. And he noticed that fructose consumption appeared to be an especially powerful driver not only of high blood pressure, but also fat gain. And if you want to read more and listen more about uric acid and how it's implicated in other metabolic diseases, I recommend you listening to my Drop Acid podcast by Rick Johnson, where I go into deep, deep detail about uric acid. Now, again, the culprit seems to be uric acid, and other mammals and even some pr primates possess an enzyme called uricase. This helps clear uric acid from our from our body. But we humans lack this important and apparently beneficial enzyme, so uric acid actually tends to build up with all its negative consequences. The gene for this uricase enzyme was silenced or lost throughout the years. Now, when these apes 
consumed fructose, they generated lots of uric acid, which caused them to store many more of the fructose calories as fat. This newfound ability to store fat enabled them to survive in the coldest climate. But in our modern world, this fat storage mechanism has outlived its usefulness. We no longer need to worry about foraging for fruit or putting on fat to survive a cold winter. This is sort of the things that our ancestors did. Again, this is why the uric acid was so helpful. Now again, fructose isn't the only thing that creates uric acid. Foods high in chemicals with a lot of purines in it, like meats, cheese, anchovies, beer, they also generate a lot of uric acid. And uric acid, again, linked to high blood pressure, amongst other things. But when we metabolize fructose in large quantities, a different enzyme takes over. And this enzyme does not really put on the brakes on ATP's spending. Instead, energy or ATP levels actually drop inside the cell rapidly and dramatically. And this rapid drop in energy makes the cells think that we are still hungry. So this mechanism is a little, a little bit confusing, but he describes it as this drop in cell ATP triggers an enzyme called AMP deaminase, which is sort of, sort of like the opposite of AMP kinase. In AMPD, the deaminase, it really is like the reverse fuel gauge enzyme that you know, we, we kind of discussed uh, previously. But when this gets triggered, it sends down a whole path of really storage, fat storage and more storage. And of course, this is the problem. And on a more macro level, consuming large quantities of liquid fructose simply overwhelms the ability of the gut to handle it. And this excess is really shunted to the liver. And of course, this is where NAFLD occurs, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And many of the calories are just getting end up stored as fat. So again, evolution is not our friend. Um, nowadays, we don't need to store, we need to really burn. And again, this evolutionary process is against us. So Gerald Reven, who died in 2018 at the age of 89, he had fought, he had fought for decades about insulin resistance and how its association with type 2 diabetes. And studies have found that insulin resistance is actually linked to itself in huge increases in cancer. He puts here up to 12-fold Alzheimer's disease, 5-fold, and death from cardiovascular disease, almost 6-fold. All of which underscores why addressing and ideally preventing metabolic dysfunction is a cornerstone of Peter's approach to longevity. He puts here that it is beyond backwards that we do not treat hyperinsulinemia like a bona fide endocrine disorder on its own. He would argue that doing so might have a greater impact on human health and longevity than any other target or, or, or therapy of therapies. The good news, of course, is that we have tremendous agencies and different types of uh, ways to really combat this. So changing how we exercise, how we eat, how we sleep can completely turn the tables in our favor. And we'll get to all that stuff in future episodes. But for now, I wanted to move on to the next chapter, which is the ticker, confronting and preventing heart disease, which is the deadliest killer on the planet. Just to quickly go over some numbers, globally, heart disease and stroke, which he lumps together as ASCVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, represents the leading cause of death, killing an estimated 2,300 people every single day in the U.S., now, Peter became very interested in cardiovascular disease after he got a 
coronary calcium score or a CT scan of his heart. The scan was calibrated to detect calcification in his coronary arteries, which is a sign of advanced atherosclerosis. Now, when he did his coronary calcium score, he got a score of 6. Now, this sounds low in absolute terms at once, but for someone his age at 36, it should have been 0. His score of 6 meant that he had more calcium in his coronary arteries than 75 to 90% of people his age. And this really sent him down the whole rabbit hole. So because his calcium score was only 6 and all his LDL cholesterol was normal, the medical advice he received was obviously to do nothing, which sounds a lot like medicine 2.0 where we don't really focus on you know, treatment or prevention. We just wait till the disease happens and then we do something about it. So, But doing nothing is not really his style as you may have gathered by now. And again, this sent him on a years-long quest to truly under understand atherosclerosis. Now, we don't need to be afraid of cholesterol. We know cholesterol is very essential to life. It's in all of our cell membranes. It's needed for hormone productions like testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, and cortisol. It's also needed for bile acid formation, which helps in digesting fats. All cells can synthesize their own cholesterol. And because cholesterol belongs to the lipid family, it's not really water-soluble, and thus it cannot dissolve in our plasma like glucose does, or sodium, and it doesn't really travel freely throughout the circulation. Therefore, we, we need it to be carted around in certain molecules, and we call these lipoproteins. So you may, you may have heard of LDL, low-density lipoproteins, and HDL, high-density lipoproteins. These act like little cargo submarines that carry around the cholesterol. Now again, it is called low-density lipoproteins because it has to do with the proportion of fat to protein. So LDL has to do with carrying more lipids than, than proteins, and HDL carries more proteins in relation to the fat. Therefore, it's called, that's why it's called HDL, because it's more dense. Now, each lipoprotein particle is enwrapped by one or more larger molecules, we call these apolipoproteins. And this helps provide structure, stability, and more importantly, solubility to the particle. Now, the HDL particle is wrapped in a molecule called ApoA, or apolipoprotein A, while the LDL is encased in an apolipoprotein B, or ApoB for short. Now, another major misconception about heart disease is that it is somehow caused by cholesterol that we eat in our diet, but we know that this is no longer true. Eating lots of saturated fat can increase levels of atherosclerotic um, causing lipids in our blood, but most of the actual cholesterol that we consume in our food ends up being excreted in our stool. And even Ansel Keys, who was a famed nutrition scientist, he really knew this was really nonsense. So there is no connection whatsoever between cholesterol and food and cholesterol and blood. He was saying this all the way back in 1997. There's another myth about cholesterol as well. And it's the idea that only old people and only old people and people who don't take care of themselves really suffer from cardiovascular disease. And again, this is not true. So, what proportion of heart attacks occur in people younger than the age of 65? Fully half of all major adverse cardiovascular events in men 
and a third of these in women, like heart attack, stroke, occur before the age of 65. So this is not a disease of the old, and this is why we need to, we need to talk about prevention to our patients, even the younger ones less than 65. Because a lot of this can be prevented in our 20s and 30s before we get the, the cholesterol buildup. And I think it would be very important to talk about the pathogenesis of cholesterol and ASCVD. So the trouble starts when LDL particles get really stuck in the arterial wall and subsequently become oxidized, meaning the cholesterol molecule they contain, it comes in contact with reactive oxygen species. And this causes oxidative stress. And it's the oxidation of the lipids on the LDL that really kick off the entire atherosclerotic cascade. So just to sum up, we have our immune cells, the monocytes and macrophages, which go to the aggregated cholesterol and consume them. Now, when these macrophages consume these particles, it creates something called a foam cell. And it's called a foam cell because of the way it looks underneath a microscope. Now, when enough of these foam cells gather together, they form a fatty streak. And it's literally a streak of fat that you can see with your naked eye during an autopsy. And if an HDL particle, by the way, arrives to this fatty streak, it's able to take that cholesterol back out of the macrophages in a process called delipidization. It then slips back across the endothelial layer and into the bloodstream. This is why HDL is so important because research is really showing that HDL has multiple other atheroprotective functions that include helping maintain the integrity of the endothelium, lowering inflammation, and also, again, neutralizing or stopping the oxidation of LDL, sort of like a arterial antioxidant. Eventually, when this foam particle begins to accumulate, we get the fatty streak. In an attempt to control the damage, the smooth muscle cells in the artery wall, they migrate to this waste site and, and start secreting sorts of like proteins and different kinds of um, you know matrices that help attempt to kind of build a barrier around this fatty streak. And this creates sort of like a scar. Now this matrix ends up as a fibrous cap on your brand new arterial plaque. And this plaque again will be con continue to grow. At first, this expansion is directed towards the outer arterial wall, but as it continues, it may encroach on the lumen, which is where our blood flows through. And it's sort of analogous to blocking traffic in the street itself. So this luminal narrow narrowing we call stenosis. So luminal narrowing. And again, this can be seen on angiogram. And again, if this plaque becomes unstable, eroding or even rupturing, this is where the problem really occurs. This is where the myocardial infarction ensues with the plaque rupture. So that's a little bit about the pathogenesis. And he turns his attention to LP little a. Now, LP little a or lipoprotein A is a lipoprotein is formed when a garden variety LDL particle is fused with another protein called ApoA. Now, APO lipoprotein A, not to be confused with the ApoA that surrounds the HDL. I know it's very confusing, but when an LDL particle mixes with this other APO lipoprotein A, this 
this ApoA wraps loosely around the LDL particle with multiple looping amino acid segments. They call it a Kringle. And it's named because of their structure resembles a Danish pastry. So it's called a Kringle. Now, the Kringles are what makes LP little a so dangerous. As the LDL particle passes through the bloodstream, they scoop up bits of oxidized lipid molecules and carry them along. But because LP little a is a member of the ApoB particle family, it also has the potential to penetrate the endothelium and get lodged into the arterial wall, leading down the whole cascade of atherosclerosis. So this is why LP little a is also very dangerous. Even worse, once it's there, it acts partly as a thrombotic or pro-clotting factor, which helps speed the formation of the arterial plaques. Now, it's, this is not a typical scenario where a patient would come to him and say that his father had heart disease, his grandfather had heart disease, and all these people in the family were dying of premature heart disease. Now, LP, elevated LP little a is the first thing that he would look for. It's the most prevalent hereditary risk factor for heart disease, and its danger is amplified by the fact that it's still largely flying under the radar of Medicine 2.0, although we're sort of coming around to it finally, the importance of LP little a. Again, how to reduce cardiovascular disease? We'll get the, into this in the later detail, but our first order of business is to really reduce the burden of ApoA, ApoB particles, primarily LDLs and also VLDLs. We can also do things that protect our endothelium, like not smoking, lowering our blood pressure, and lowering our cholesterol. This is all important stuff. There's also medications out there like statins, azetamibe, PCSK9 inhibitors that are all needed to really help prevent uh, atherosclerosis. And if we want to reduce deaths by cardiovascular disease, we need to begin thinking about prevention in people in their 40s and even 30s. So again, Medicine 3.0, all about prevention. So I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you learned something about the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, ApoA, ApoB, LP little a, apolipoprotein. I know it's it's a lot of a lot of different medical jargon, but again, all these kind of relate to the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis. And again, we need to focus on prevention. So I hope you learned something. Hope you tune in next time. And again, thank you for listening.